This is Tom O'Connell. Welcome to my podcast, Vegas Fed. In 1990, I was a former Suffolk County, New York cop and assistant district attorney who found himself in the Mojave Desert prosecuting federal cases as an assistant U.S. attorney in Las Vegas, Nevada. The first case I'm going to revisit is the kidnapping for ransom, a very substantial ransom, of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of Steve Wynn, the man who revived and reinvented Las Vegas when he opened the Mirage at the end of 1989. It is a story of desperation and greed, evil and stupidity, courage and love, and a lot of hard work in a mission to bring the perpetrators to justice. Las Vegas, the 90s, the new Vegas. The actual birthday was November 22, 1989, the day the grandiose, lavish, sparkling new mirage was unveiled to the world. The strip had been reinvented. The architect of all of it was the young, toothsome, and always tanned Steve Wynn. The naysayers said Wynn would never be able to generate the $1 million each day that would be required to keep the lights on. They were wrong. By 1993, the year of the infamous kidnapping, the Excalibur, the Luxor, the MGM Grand, and Wynn's own Treasure Island would be built. Thanks to Wynn, Vegas was booming, but his world was about to come crashing down around him. On this episode of Vegas Fed, Sherwood and Watkins flee Sacramento. $100 bills are again flying, this time in St. Louis. The McBride sisters have a change of heart. AUSA Jay Angelo joins the prosecution team. And one of the three kidnappers flips. The next night, Jake and Anthony met at the apartment of another friend named Heather. They agreed that, because the heat was on in Sacramento, they had to get out of town. Jake recruited his brother-in-law, Fred Ford III, to purchase a getaway car. He gave him $6,000 in hundreds, with which Ford bought a 1985 Ford Bronco in San Jose. When the three arrived in St. Louis, they stayed at the home of Eric Chambers, the fiancé of their cousin Raquel. They decided to entrust the proceeds of the kidnapping to Ford's father, Fred Ford Jr., to be dispersed as needed. Eric Chambers described him as big time. On September 20th, acting on a tip, FBI agents arrested Sherwood and Watkins at the Pear Tree apartment complex in St. Louis, where they'd been staying. Another phase of the investigation revealed much about their activities there. Once again, they made large cash purchases all in hundreds in false names and or using nominees. Watkins bought a Thunderbird for $4,000. Sherwood bought another Cadillac for $3,000. And Ford Jr. bought a 1993 Kawasaki motorcycle for Sherwood at a cost of $8,400. It was on the way to St. Louis that Sherwood and Watkins concocted a cover story in the inevitable event of their arrest. To wit, they had traveled to Las Vegas to do a drug deal. They would claim that each sold a kilogram of cocaine for $22,000. It apparently hadn't occurred to them that these sums could not begin to explain the bundles of hundreds they'd either spent or given away. While at a mall, they met a group of young, naive suburban girls who lived with their families in Baldwin, Missouri. The first was a 16-year-old named Sarah, who met and became sweet on Watkins. She soon introduced her new gangster boyfriend, known as Mariko Dean, a.k.a. Rico, 
a.k.a. Anthony Watkins, and his badass cousin Tony Dean, a.k.a. T, a.k.a. Jacob Sherwood, to her friends, and they started hanging out together at the apartment complex. The pair had plenty of money and played the role of drug dealers. The girls saw what they described as bricks of marijuana, which would later prove to be three ounces. This demonstrated the naivete of the little suburban girls. What kind of big-time coke dealers would possess a whole three ounces of pot? Jake and Anthony had been on the run for almost two months when the FBI got the tip and locked them up in St. Louis. Each claimed they'd sold a kilo of coke for $22,000 in Vegas, sticking to their script. All of their new little girlfriends were interviewed and subpoenaed to Las Vegas for grand jury appearances. Needless to say, their parents, who accompanied them, were thrilled. One worked in a bank and said that Sherwood had asked her if she could break $100 bills into smaller bills. In this regard, we return to our secret weapon. Sean Healy was an IRS criminal investigation agent who I'd met while second chairing a money laundering case. At the time, I had no experience in that area, and I was anxious to learn. Volunteering for that duty was one of the best moves I ever made. Sean was a great agent, the best I've ever worked with. And after that trial, I would charge money laundering in every case I possibly could, no matter the crime, just to get Sean on board. Adding IRS charges, including tax charges, strengthened any case. Hard-working jurors don't like to hear about scumbags who've never worked a day in their lives, living high in the hog, and not even paying taxes. So my objective was typically to get Sean on every case, whether the lead agency liked it or not. Usually it would be the latter. Sean was a money laundering expert, and would later testify that breaking down big bills for small was the exact opposite of what big-time drug dealers would do. He also explained that certain basic accounting principles applied even to drug dealers. For example, there was a cost of doing business. If you sell a kilogram of cocaine for $22,000, well, that's not all profit. You may have paid $10,000 for it, or been fronted the dope, meaning your supplier, someone higher up in the chain, is owed money, someone you would not want to neglect to repay. This testimony further undermined, to say the least, Jake and Anthony's cock and bull story about their money being proceeds of a Las Vegas drug deal. One of the young girls named Karen told us that T, Jake Sherwood, explained that he and Anthony had won the lottery in the amount of $1.45 million. Another told us that once, while riding in a car with Sherwood, he thought someone was following them and instructed her to take a gun out from where it was secreted and shoot them if they continued. Was he kidding? There was zero chance of a teenage girl from Baldwin committing murder on command. One of the great things about our office in those days was that there were a few smart, solid people who I could go to to bounce ideas off of. And they were more than happy to help. They were real team players. My go-to guys were Howard Zlotnick, the criminal chief, and Jay Angelo, an OCDF prosecutor, two of the best prosecutors I have ever known. Both were former Navy JAG officers, and Jay had done two tours of Vietnam as a Marine. After a few months handling the win case solo, but with a ton of advice from these guys, Jay wanted in. This was an easy decision. I said no problem. And it's one of the best decisions I made during my tenure in Las Vegas. So around the time that the focus of the case had turned to St. Louis, Jay officially came on board, starting with the grand jury of all the dumbass little girls from Baldwin, Missouri. The whole ordeal was quite traumatic for the Baldwin suburbanites. I have a feeling the girls ended up grounded for a very long time.
From the beginning, I'd planned to offer a negotiated plea to all five defendants, Cuddy, Sherwood, Watkins, and the McBride sisters. When Cuddy got back to Las Vegas, he was originally represented by the Federal Public Defender's Office. The attorney assigned to the case was Sherry Kaufman, a fast-talking former legal aid lawyer from Brooklyn, someone this Bronx kid could talk to and actually understand what she was saying. I had offered Sherry a sentence of around 12 years. My impression was that she thought the offer reasonable and that she'd recommend that Cuddy accept the deal. But he didn't, and soon he fired her and hired a private attorney, Mitch Posen. In the meantime, the McRoys were the first to cut their losses. They both decided to plead guilty to their perjury indictments and agreed to cooperate with us. The first step in the process, however, is a proffer or a sit-down, a session during which we get to fully debrief the defendants in order to determine if they're being forthcoming and truthful. We met with each McBride and their attorneys, Patty Erickson and Karen Connolly, and for the first time heard the full truth from them. They knew that Jake and Anthony had been in Vegas. And in fact, Jake had gone there just a few weeks before the kidnapping. Uncle Ray, a white guy, was paying for everything. Jake and Anthony had called the girls many times from Vegas. Upon their return to Sacramento, they had been picked up by their friend Laval at the airport and then went directly to Mary's house to meet up with the others. $100 bills were flying, and cryptic references were made to the source of the funds. It was a crime, but it was neither a drug deal nor a murder. Glenda McBride accompanied Jake to a motel where he showed her his money, 300000 in hundreds. He confided that he had shafted Anthony and given him only 100000 telling him that that was half of their cut. He apparently knew that Ray had likewise shafted him and had kept much more than he had given Jake. They went to the mall and Jake spent over $1,000 on jewelry, etc., etc., all in hundreds. As we suspected, they knew a lot more than they had given us in the grand jury. The McBride's pleas were taken in a sealed courtroom on September 15th. On October 1st, the pleas and their cooperation were reported in the local press. Negotiations continued, and it seemed that Mitch Posen might persuade Cuddy to plead as well. Meanwhile, Jake and Anthony were in tow from St. Louis but they had been popped on September 20th. Now the logjam was breaking. Anthony had hired a private attorney from Sacramento, Dan Brace. I didn't know him previously, but Dan seemed a pretty sharp, civil guy. Negotiations, however, were not initially fruitful. I suggested that Anthony might want to cooperate with the government and testify against Cuddy, the ringleader, and Sherwood. Brace agreed that Anthony would do well to get on board and said he was going to work on him. Then came the call. Anthony would plead and cooperate. This was great news. Anthony had been the least culpable of the three, as even his split suggested. He had not entered Kevin's house, was only a lookout, and he hadn't touched the gun. He was slight and soft-spoken, the youngest defendant. He would probably be the least offensive to a jury. Yet, he could presumably give us a view of the conspiracy from the inside. So we'd take a profit from him and find out. Anthony was going to provide some compelling evidence. The jurors who would sit through this trial were going to hear riveting testimony from him. About two weeks before the kidnapping, Jake had called Anthony from Las Vegas and invited him down for the weekend. Jake and Cuddy picked him up in McCarran and brought him to their room at the Sun Harbor Budget Suites. A couple of days later, the three had a meeting over breakfast at a local casino. Jake told Anthony that he was going to listen to what Ray had to say. So Anthony listened too. Cuddy told Anthony that he had a plan to kidnap someone. He referred to her only as Blondie. He said that her father owned a casino and that they could extract a ransom of $300,000 for her return. Ray, 
Anthony claimed that he was reluctant to hear anymore, but that Jake reassured him by telling him Ray had done this before, so just listen. Ray was going to follow Blondie and her car. When it stopped for a red light, he would jump into the car and subdue her with a stun gun. He would then transport her to a motel room, from which her father would be called with the ransom demand. He would also take photos of Blondie, topless, to ensure that her father did not call the police. A couple of days later, Anthony found himself in the back seat of Cuddy's Volkswagen in the Mirage parking lot. He said they were waiting for Blondie. They would wait several hours. To while away the boredom, Anthony occupied himself by playing with something he had found in Cuddy's car, a stun gun. Cuddy explained that he had previously spent hours sitting in the parking lot waiting for Blondie in a van with blacked-out windows. He had followed her, and her license plate said Bionda, Blonde, hence the nickname Blondie. Cuddy got out of the car and walked to Kevin Wynn's parking spot, but her car was gone. They had missed her, so they returned to the hotel. Jake and Anthony then flew back to Sacramento to await further instructions from Cuddy. On July 24th, Cuddy summoned them back to Vegas. He had refined his plan and was ready to go. They flew down on the 26th. Cuddy picked them up at McCarran and brought them to a room he had rented at Motel 6. He announced that he had figured out a way into Kevin Wynn's house. Cuddy claimed that he had called a locksmith to a private airport where Kevin's car had been parked. He had the locksmith open the car and grabbed the garage door opener. Cuddy then laid out the rest of the plan. Using his car, Anthony would drop he and Jake off in Spanish trails, then wait by the payphone at a Carl's Jr. on the corner of Tropicana. After they had Kevin, Jake would drop Cuddy off at the Carl's Jr. and proceed to the airport with her. Cuddy and Anthony would then take his Volkswagen to the 7-Eleven to make calls from the four payphones there. To be sure that Jake and Anthony understood, Cuddy took them on a dry run a few hours before the crime. When it was time, Cuddy took the license plates off the VW and replaced them. When they got to the house, Cuddy and Sherwood each put stockings over their head and entered the garage. Anthony was left to wait by the Carl's Jr. payphone for Cuddy. Over the next several hours... Anthony would call Mary in Sacramento and call Cuddy's cell to see what was taking so long. Finally, Cuddy appeared, carrying a plastic bag with Kevin Wynn's jewelry. He told Anthony about finding the door from the garage to the house unlocked and about the photo session, although he claimed the camera actually had no film in it. He just wanted Kevin to think he was taking pictures. They went on to the Sonny's 7-Eleven phones, and Cuddy made his calls. Anthony called Mary to tell her he'd be home soon. Then there was an abrupt change in plans. Anthony was originally to accompany Cuddy to pick up the ransom money. Cuddy suddenly put Anthony in a cab for the airport. Anthony arrived at the airport and soon Jake appeared with a duffel bag and Anthony's backpack, which he had left in Cuddy's car. Jake led Anthony to the men's room, where they proceeded to remove paper clips from stacks and stacks of $100 bills. Did you open your bag? Yes, I did. What did you see inside that bag? Money. Did you have a notion? Have you ever seen how much money before in your life? No. During the plane ride back to Sacramento, Jake told Anthony what had gone on inside Kevin's house. Though he was unsure whether the camera was actually loaded with film, Ray had been careful to photograph him from the neck down. When they got back to Mary's house, Anthony counted his share, and it was $92,000. Anthony recounted the spending sprees, the motel rooms, 
the craziness of the next couple of days, and the fear once it became clear that they had been found out and the police and FBI were looking for them. Jake had gone with Fred Ford III to San Jose to buy the Bronco. And once they got to St. Louis, they entrusted their money to the shadowy Fred Ford Jr., who had recently arrived back in town. Jake and Anthony had agreed that if they were arrested, they would tell the authorities that the reason they were in Vegas with Cuddy was to do a cocaine deal. They reasoned that because they were in fact drug dealers, albeit not kilo dealers, the story might fly. As for Sherwood, he had been assigned an attorney, an alumni of the Federal Public Defender's Office, named Dan Albrechts. Dan, a John Cusick lookalike, had been the darling of the FPD, Franny Forsman, after running up a string of acquittals. Now he was in private practice, and Forsman directed a career case to Dan Albrechts. Sherwood, however, was apparently never interested in either a plea or cooperation. We now had Anthony on board. We had the McBride sisters. Through the Sacramento kids and through business records which corroborated them, we would show that Sherwood spent more than what the profit from several kilo deals would have been, over $60,000, all in hundreds. And we had his prints on the Beyonder parking ticket. But we weren't done, not by a long shot. On December 2nd, we superseded our indictment, adding money laundering charges to the conspiracy, extortion, and use of a firearm charges. Our continuing investigation in St. Louis was bearing fruit. On January 11th, Fred Ford III, who'd assisted Sherwood and Watkins in several ways, including the purchase of the Bronco and transporting them to St. Louis, was arrested in Milwaukee based upon our indictment for money laundering and aiding and abetting. Ford had been found in November and interviewed by the FBI, then subpoenaed to testify before the Las Vegas grand jury, where he, surprise, lied. However, he recanted the very next day. A trial date was set for April, but we'd add perjury charges later, which would kick it into June. Until there is a guilty verdict, the investigation does not cease. Somewhere along the line, I'd recently heard that jail calls at the Metropolitan Detention Center in L.A. were taped. This is common today, but then it was a revelation. So here comes one of my headbutting sessions with Mike Growney. I requested that the FBI facilitate the obtaining of any calls Cuddy may have made from the facility during his stay there. Oftentimes, when you give the FBI an idea that did not originate with them, it is necessarily a bad idea. I was told that Cuddy would not be stupid enough to make any admissions or even disclose any useful information over the phone. In short, I was on my own. I contacted the facility and confirmed that all inmate calls were in fact recorded and was advised of the procedure to get copies. We would need to give them a duplicate reel or pay for one, 100 bucks. U.S. Attorney Catherine Landreth approved the expenditure and the end of the story is that I wound up with several tapes in cassette form. Guys in jail used the phone a lot. We, I, had a bunch of conversations to listen to. I distinctly remember sitting in my living room on a Friday night, drink in hand, listening to Ray Cuddy's greatest hits on the cassette deck that was part of my old school stereo system. A lot of blathering on, attempts to speak in code, and then, in a conversation with his son Jason on August 15th, have you heard anything about Steve Wynn and his daughter? I mean, she was okay, so I'm sure she's not hurt. I mean, she, 
we didn't hurt her or anything. So the world's most elite investigators had been wrong, so wrong. There were other incriminating and otherwise useful statements as well, which I had uncovered on my own initiative, on my own time, on my office's dime. The conversation leading up to the above quote indicated that Cuddy was getting worried about more than prison. I hope the two kids give themselves up and get this thing over with, and nobody gets hurt in the meantime, you know? As I mentioned, I was told by people in LA that Cuddy was terrified of what Steve Wynn might do and did not want to return to Las Vegas for his trial. Oh well. Cuddy's attorney, Mitchell Posen, would attempt to suppress these admissions by claiming that he had no notice that the calls were taped. The evidence to the contrary was substantial. It was explained to him by jail personnel, and he signed forms acknowledging so. There were also placards next to each and every phone, large enough to be seen even without his glasses, and he admitted in several calls that he knew his calls were being taped. The hearing on Mitchell Posen's suppression motions would be the only time Cuddy would testify, and I relished the chance to cross-examine him. And on of all days, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, a Donnybrook between two Irishmen who did not care for one another in the least occurred. The Las Vegas Review-Journal described his testimony and cross-examination as a sparring session between Cuddy and his foe, me. The Las Vegas Sun would call it a skirmish, which Cuddy lost. It's usually easy to prevail when the witness is a liar. Another subject of this hearing was a change of venue motion. The gist of it was that all of the local publicity precluded a fair trial in Las Vegas. The law, however, is that a criminal defendant is entitled to a fair jury, not an ignorant one. Although this was not dispositive of the issue, he pointed out to the court that Posen, Cuddy's attorney, was the press's most prolific source of publicity, while the government consistently answered no comment to their constant queries. This venture failed as well. The trial would move forward with the jail tapes and in Las Vegas. You've heard this from me before. Solving a crime is only the first step in the process of bringing a criminal to justice. Without a successful prosecution, the guilty escape punishment. Tax dollars are wasted, faith in the system is diminished, and the effort to deter others is undermined. It's natural for the average police officer to feel that once a purpose is apprehended, his job is done. Let the lawyers sort it out. But without a competent investigation, followed by an equally effective analysis of the evidence and trial preparation, the cops might as well not have bothered. This will sound redundant, I know. However, every single relevant detail in any case that can be ascertained should be. We had recovered a 357 Magnum, among other things, from the trunk of the car Cuddy drove to Newport Imports on the day he was to pick up his $200,000 Ferrari. We knew that it was the firearm Jake Sherwood held to Kevin Wynn's head on the night of the kidnapping inside her condo. So we had testimony that a gun was used, and a gun which was recovered from Cuddy's trunk. What more evidence could we need in this regard? My answer was to call Terry Clark, an outstanding ATF agent I'd worked repeat offenders cases with, and have him run down any information he could on this particular handgun. Terry's efforts resulted in the original receipts for the purchase of the 357, the federal firearms forms required to be filled out when buying such a firearm, and the private seller from whom Cuddy had purchased it. The man's name was Paul Ferreira, and he knew Ray Cuddy from his halcyon days managing the Newport Beach Sporting House. We called Mr. Ferreira as a witness at trial, and he related the purchase of the 357 by Cuddy to the jury, and easily identified him. Just another piece of evidence, a small piece perhaps, but it blocked another potential attempt at minor obfuscation by Ray Cuddy. 
and made another demonstration for the jury that we were leaving no stone, however small, unturned. The case we had built was unquestionably strong. A good prosecutor, however, always racks his brain to ascertain what defense will be attempted by his adversary. We knew the Saudi defense would probably be employed by Albrecht's. That is, some other dude did it. In all likelihood, Spiro Kemble. This would conveniently point the finger away from Jacob Sherwood. But how in the world would Cuddy avoid the substantial body of evidence against him? We could put over $800,000 in his hands. We could prove that he had been broke before the kidnapping. How would he try to explain away his new fortune? AUSAs get paid to worry. One thing that kept bothering us, and particularly Jay, was that we could not tie the specific $100 bills recovered from Cuddy to Mirage Ransom. The bills were not marked, and there was no record of the serial numbers they bore. It's common for criminals caught with criminal proceeds in the form of cash to go up with some other explanation for the money, no matter how ridiculous. But if we could positively link these bills with the Mirage, Cuddy wouldn't be able to tell the jury any fairy tales. When we were investigating the case out at the Mirage, we had visited all of the areas of the casino, and all the employees who had played a role in the kidnap extortion were interviewed. At the cashier cage, we learned how the soft count, i.e. the cash, is counted, and bound in wrappers, color-coded by denomination. It is checked and rechecked, initialed and stored. The hundreds that were delivered to Cuddy were contained in such wrappers. Of course, Sherwood and Watkins had months to dispose of the inch-wide strips which bound their share of the ransom. But Cuddy had left town immediately, and he had a lot more money than they did. Was he careful enough to have disposed of all the wrappers in his possession? None had been found, or this problem would have been solved. Where had they gone? We continued to ask the agents about this. As usual, they felt we were reaching far beyond what was necessary to convict. In other words, we were asking for more than they had been able to provide. I have to admit, this time even I thought maybe this was not necessary for a conviction. If we could connect the hundreds to the Mirage, another avenue of escape would be denied the defense. On the other hand, I was fresh out of ideas, with the exception of one possible long shot. We had been assured that all of Cuddy's property had been thoroughly searched and inventoried by the FBI upon his arrest in Newport Beach. And further, that Las Vegas agents had repeated the drill for good measure when the evidence was transferred to their custody. Call me anal or just a pain in the ass, but I decided that while we were marking our trial exhibits, a process which took several very long days, I would go through everything again myself. I wouldn't slow us down in any way, but would simply roam around the room physically examining, picking up, squeezing, pulling, turning inside out every piece of Cuddy's property that I could, while the others sat at the conference table, brainstorming and typing up our battle plan. What we call marking exhibits is in fact much more, and a critical part of trial prep. A reasonable number of items must be selected from all the evidence in the government's possession for actual presentation to the jury. The criteria applied to the selection process includes relative evidentiary value of a given exhibit, potential juror impact, ability to present it in a fashion which creates a flow, chronology, physical logistics, etc. The same goes for the witness lists and the order in which witnesses would be called. Both are excruciatingly time-consuming and tedious exercises. A comprehensive and detailed exhibit list must be created at this time. This list will summarize the strategic attack of the prosecution. It will identify the exhibits and the order in which they'll be presented. It will enumerate the witnesses which will introduce specific exhibits, the order in which they'll be called, and cross-reference other exhibits and witnesses to one another, 
as should the witness list. These documents form a roadmap for the upcoming trial, while the objectives and means to those objectives are fresh in one's mind. Once trial starts and the pace changes, from attention to every detail to a long sprint, there'll be precious little time to make adjustments. An op plan, an operational plan, devised by fresh minds with the luxury of time at their disposal, will prove an invaluable resource when the shit hits the fan. We spent the better part of a week in the war room reserved just for us at the Bureau, attacking the aforementioned tasks. Jay and I, Mike and Skip and Sean went back and forth on these decisions. Do we start with testimony about the crime itself, capturing the jury's attention immediately? Not all of the shocking and sordid details have been publicly disclosed, and hearing them from the mouth of Kevin would be nothing short of high drama. Or do we develop Cuddy's background and motive first, followed by his association with Sherwood and Watkins, so the jury knows the players right away? Do we stick to a timeline or explain all the movements of Cuddy and then go back to the beginning again with Jake and Anthony and tell their complete story? The final decision on these matters would be mine. I solicited the advice of the others, not just to be diplomatic, because I learned a long time ago that two heads are better than one. And when you think about it, I really did have quite a formidable task force supporting me in that room. Jay, a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve, a Stanford grad, a Vietnam vet. Mike, a lawyer, and 23 years as an FBI man who could charm the fleas off a pit bull. Skip, a graduate of West Point and former U.S. Army officer. And Sean, a UCLA grad, a tax and money laundering expert with superb common sense a formidable witness, and a natural conciliator. So, I methodically went through suit bags, shopping bags, and gym bags. I fondled shirts and shorts. I opened appliance cases and shave kits. I checked the inside of his $2,000 ostrich skin cowboy boots. And, I must admit, I also played with the stun gun. So did everybody else. The zapping noise they make is addictive, like the pop you generate squeezing plastic bubble wrap. During this process, I was standing off in the corner, scrutinizing every object the Bureau had seized from Cuddy. I was also participating in the conversation from afar while the others, at the table, continued strategizing and debating, formulating our game plan, which Skip entered onto a laptop computer. Then I came across a couple of velour-like sacks with the name Aventura on them. Each had once held a full quill ostrich boot. The pair cost $1,950. Another of many extravagances purchased at the cost of the wind's anguish by the avaricious Cuddy. The little drawstrung bags were deep and soft. Like I had with so many other items of property, I thrust my hands down into the unknown, to the bottom of each bag, one after the other. I felt something. Shards of paper. Could it be? Nah, probably garbage. Another receipt for yet another purchase, underwritten by the pain of others. I withdrew my hand and looked, not fully removing the objects in my grasp. I walked over to the table and dumped the contents of the pretentious little sack onto the table for all to see. Smiles erupted. I asked for an agent, a potential witness, to ascertain exactly what items might have been located within the pretentious little bag. Mission accomplished, and the last avenue of escape had been closed off. Cuddy wouldn't be able to claim, with any credibility, that the hundreds came from anywhere but the Mirage, thanks to several money wrappers signed and dated by the casino cage personnel positively identified as having come from $10,000 stacks of $100 bills obtained at the Mirage Casino Cage, dated July 26, 1993. The FBI, the Federal Bureau of Infallibility, had come up short. As they say, little cases, little headaches, big cases, big headaches. 
There were few cases in the history of Las Vegas, if any, bigger than this one. And next time on Vegas Fed, the government prepares for an anticipated defense, which will be promised in opening statements and comes out swinging with their case as trial begins. This podcast was recorded on the campus of UNLV in the studios at 91.5 KUNV Radio with engineering and editing by Kevin Crawl. Content and music copyright 2020, Tom O'Connell.